Right, good evening listeners, welcome to the Big Issues Podcast, our 70th episode, our 70th episode, my good lord, how we come that far. Uh, I'm Dowd Khan, James Roxburgh is not joining us this week because he's, well, he just isn't, so there we are, let's carry on, uh, and let's talk about the 70th episode. So, don't worry, 75th episode, so in five weeks' time, so hopefully uh, end of the next month we will have a, we'll probably celebrate it. Right now, we're just going to do a, a normal episode. We'll, oh, it's a history episode. It's a history episode. So, in this episode, we're going to talk about the 2010 coalition talks. Why? Why not? Next, um, you chose to click on the podcast, so why not? Um, we're going to explain how we went from the 6th of May to the 11th of May. It's going to be very in-depth, very focused, very much of a deep dive. If anyone's ever listened to a, like episode like for example, the Grand Bargain or Obamacare, you would know I can do a very deep dive based episode. This is one of those episodes. We're going to intricacy be a lot of quotes, a lot of analysis, a lot of rambling from me. It's going to be no more than an hour. I'm not going to make this a two hour episode, an hour and a half. I I I, I can't go on for more than an hour, and I don't think you'd want me to go on for more than an hour. So let's just crack on. So now that's next week's episode on reinventing government departments. So, coalition talks. So, May the 6th, 2010, as we know, was the the infamous 2010 general election. Labour, after 13 years of being in power, uh, expects to be thrown out, and the Tories expect to win an overall majority, a slender one, but nevertheless a majority. I mean, it's quite ironic, actually, because famously, about half a year before the elections, like late 2009, you had commentators saying David Cameron would win a majority of 100 seats and now he's in a hung parliament. Why? Because the Liberal Democrats ran an extraordinary campaign, especially in that first election debate, and the Lib Dems were polling at 28-29%. And as a result, people thought the Lib Dems would probably take away the Tory majority. So, cute exit poll, 10 o'clock. It's Conservatives 307, Labour 200, Conservatives 307. That's up, well, it's up 119 seats. Yes, it is. Up 119 on boundary change. On boundary changes, it's up 97. Because remember, the 2005 election result was Conservatives 198, Labour 356, Liberal Democrats 62. The boundary changes put it Conservatives 210, Labour 349, Liberal Democrats 62. So you had Labour on 255, Tories 307, Labour 255, which is huge. Crying somewhat to 1.9 people thought Labour would get under 200. And the Liberal Democrats on 59. That's hilarious because people thought Liberal Democrats would have 70, 80, some even thought 100 seats, but no, 59. So the numbers show that it's possible that naturally this causes an anti-Tory majority, but it's also a conservative Liberal Democrat coalition is easily do- doable there. So at 3am on 7th of May 2010, as David Cameron enters Millbank, yes, Millbank, where, which was Labour Party headquarters for many, many years, um, until we basically had to sell it, and the Tories got Millbank. And after 13 years of Labour Party government, after five years of modernisation, and after the 2008 global financial crisis, the, the David Cameron still, still could not win a majority for the Conservative Party. 
famously Cameron said to Nick Robinson when interviewed about this, you know, because you, you're exhausted. It was asked basically, what does it feel like to be after general after on election night as you come back to HQ? What does it feel like? And Cameron said to Nick Robinson, you know, you're exhausted because you had an incredible tough campaign. You're related. The election's over, but uncertain about what's next hours and days going to bring. And nobody knew what was going to happen next, which is very true because. You know, Britain normally doesn't have hung parliaments. Well, not for, since February 1974. That was that was also a result of thinking five days as well. But no one knew what was going to happen next. You know, was was David Cameron just going to do a deal with Nick Clegg? Was Gordon Brown basically do a deal with Nick Clegg and then say to the rest of the, the parties, let's ensure the Tories stay out of power, a viable solution? And it was everything was up for grabs. And the point was, Gordon Brown knew it was up for grabs because he knew that by the laws of mathematics, there wasn't a Tory party majority. You know, if you if, if we just quickly look at the 2010 result in detail. Okay, let's look at the 2010 result in great detail. So, that's a quite nice map. So you've got the unionists that would do a deal with Labour and economics. You have the SNP that deal deal with Labour. You have the Welsh Nationalists that do a deal with Labour. You have the SDLP that sit as Labour. You have the Greens that do a deal with Labour. You have the Alliance that would do a deal with Labour. Every one of those parties would do a deal with Labour. Now, take out Sinn Féin's people. So that's down to 645. Take out the Speaker and the two deputies. That's down to 642. So that's 321 seats. Right, three hundred six minus six forty two is three hundred and twenty is three hundred and thirty six, which means you could have a majority of thirty if all other parties united against the Conservative Party. So Gordon Brown knew as he was flying back from Edinburgh that this wasn't over for the Labour Party. There actually was an, an anti-Tory majority in there if if Gordon Brown could do a deal with the Liberal Democrats. That was the key here. I mean. You know, that's why Brown, as he came back to Labour Party headquarters, as Peter Mandelson famously said, I think he generally felt his last great mission for the, for the country, the last great thing he could do was save the country from the Conservatives. And that's the key. He knew that if he could do it, if the Lib Dems would do a coalition deal with Labour, he could genuinely keep Labour in power, which would be remarkable. So Cameron's in a circle the night before. This is also documented in Kate Fall's book, The Gatekeeper, that... Kate Fall, Ed Llewellyn, George Osborne, Steve Hilton, David Cameron had all agreed that, and sorry, and William Hague had all agreed that if the Tory party got more than 300 me members of parliament, they would form a minority. But 4.15 at Millbank is when the atmosphere changed because they realised we can't form a minority, it wouldn't work. Here's why it wouldn't work. The Tory party would not get through cuts in public spending, they would not get through some of the more austerity measures because the Lib Dems would be able to say, we're not voting for this. And that means they'd be brought down by the autumn and Labour probably would win a second, would probably come back before, before the winter. So, 6.50am, Nick Clegg, of course, was the unexpected loser of the election. He only won 57 seats. Oh yeah, by the time the night was over, it was Conservatives 306, Labour 258, Liberal Democrats 57 seats. So, that's Tories up 108 on uh, 2005, but up 96 on boundary changes. That's Labour down, yes, down 98 seats on 2005, but only down, I think, 91 seats on boundary changes. Is that right? Yeah, 
on bound, 91 boundary changes, and Liberal Democrats just down five for both boundary and over five results. And Clegg, uh, you know, said to people, he would, said to Nick Robinson when he was asked about his viewings, he said, well, people deserve to know what we think and how we approach this and try to consistently op- be open as possible. Now, 10.40 a.m., Nick Clegg was the first leader to proclaim the result on the election, which basically, whichever party gets the most votes and the most seats, if not an absolute majority, has the first right to govern, has the first right to seek to govern either on its own or by reaching to others to work work a deal with work a deal. Now, what does that mean? Reaching out to others. Now, what that means, in other words, it's a deal with the Conservative Party. Because the Conservative Party had more seats, had more votes. You know, it's 36% Conservative, 29% Labour, 23% Liberal Democrats. That is a win. But as Paddy Ashdown said, it was, it was of course the, the Nick Clegg's predecessor, because Nick Paddy Ashdown was leader of the Liberal Democrats from 1988 to 2000, then it was Charlie Kennedy from 0 to 06, then Ming Campbell from 06 to 07, then Nick Clegg from 07 to 15. And Payashan said, quite rightly, you know, our hearts went one way and our heads went the other. He said this to Nick Robinson when he was asked about this in 2012, because he said, if the electorate had moved just 1%, all the problems would have been solved. And that is true. If, there, if the electorate had gone for a 4% swing from Labour to Conservatives, not a 5% swing, so, in other words, if the vote share had been Conservatives 36, Labour 31, the Labour Party still would have been able to form a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. If the vote share was Conservatives 35.5, Labour 31.5, no, 32.5, the Labour Party still would have been able to form a coalition deal with the Liberal Democrats that had a majority in the House of Commons. So that's how irritating it was for Labour Liberal Democrat people. It was so close in it so far. Now, as Sir Gus O'Donnell, the Cabinet Secretary later explained, that, of course, in every election you have to have scenarios, role-play scenarios, so you know how to orderly manage things. And they had four scenarios, a Labour majority, a Labour Liberal Democrat coalition, a conservative majority, a scenario for a conservative Liberal Democrat um, talks. Because they said Labour majority is the scenario one's three to handle easily, scenario two you can handle easily, scenario four they didn't know how to handle. Because this is the premise of Tories uh, and Liberal Democrats try to do a deal, but they can't do it without electoral reform. Lib Dems will want it and the Tories won't do it at all. Now, why does why was Sir Gus arguing stability was key? Well, Sir Gus knew stability was key. Because of that weekend, what was happening was simple. Europe was in simply free fall. You had riots in Greece. You had the debt, debt crisis in Greece was affecting the whole of Europe. Alistair Darling was flying over to Brussels to meet the European finance ministers to get a deal for Greece. So if my Monday there was no viable coalition, the markets would begin to sell our debt, which would cause huge problems for the UK economy. So... Stability was key here, but as the Friday morning uh, came about, here's the point here, and uh, Lord Andrew Adonis makes it brilliantly, he was uh, Minister in Gordon Brown's government, Lord Adonis, he said, what if David Cameron and Gordon Brown understood 
was on that Friday morning that it was perfectly possible for a non-conservative government to be formed, that all the other parties would do a tacit support for a lab-lib government. I explained that. So David Cameron was facing an anti-Tory majority unless he produced a game-changer. And that was the key. You know, if David Cameron done basically uh, we won FU narrative to minority sorry government, all the other parties would say, let's throw it, the Queen's speech out, out, the whole Queen's speech out. So we had to do a game changer. And actually, you know, this is why Cameron's very interesting because Hague, I don't imagine William Hague might have done this, but Ian Duncan Smith, Mr. <laughs> sorry, every time I say the word Ian Duncan Smith, I always think of Sir Max Hastings saying, we now need to say goodbye to Mr. Duncan Smith. Uh, Ian Duncan Smith wouldn't have done it. Michael Howard wouldn't have done it. David Davis wouldn't have done this. But he basically went to St. Stephen's Club, which is, of course, the de facto Tory HQ. I call it the Westminster Tory HQ. And he went there and said, we, he called for what called a big, open and comprehensive offer to the Liberal Democrats. Basically, he said, I believe we in the Conservative Party can give ground in the national interest and in the interest of forging an open and trusting partnership. You know, he basically wanted a coalition deal with the Liberal Democrats. Now, let's be clear about this. That is a big, bold offer. Because what that is, is doing what Cameron had done in the first two years of his leadership, 05 to 07, I, mean, I speak of, but stopped an 08, which is basically at that to the right wing of the Conservative Party. It's his way of saying to the right wing of the Conservative Party, go away. Because... If there was a remember, Conservative Liberal Democrat majority would have three hundred and sixty-three seats in the House in the House in the House, a majority of eighty-six. So we could just push through whatever it wanted to push through, and if the, and the Tory right didn't like it, say, so, well, the Lib Dems want it. I mean, famously, people say, why did Cameron make the EU referendum pledge? Simple, because he didn't think he'd have to honour it. You know, everybody, there is nobody, no one sensible thought in two thousand and thirteen. David Cameron was going to win a majority. Nobody thought that. At best, it'd be Tories 290, Lib Dems 37 or something, or something dreary. Which means the Tory party would say, well, we can't do the referendum because the Lib Dems won't allow us to. And we would say, well, Cameron wouldn't break a referendum pledge. Uh, he had. He had. He'd broken it on Lisbon, because famously David Cameron promised in 2007 uh, the referendum on the European Constitution, which of course became Lisbon, the Lisbon Treaty, and he broke that promise, quite rightly. I mean, the, the, the idea of a referendum on Lisbon is one of the most stupid ideas I've ever heard of in my life. No one's read Lisbon. No one's read the Lisbon Treaty. No one cares. Just, oh, good Lord, man. And ironically, of course, it was the Lisbon Treaty that created Article 50. Uh, for those who, uh, for those Brexit experts amongst you, you would know that Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty was the, tr the, the article invoked to leave the European Union. Anyways, now when the negotiations began, oh no, sorry, uh, everybody thought, or well, the Ryan Tory party thought he'd gone ballistic, and a lot of the number 10, David Cameron, Ed Balls, sorry, David Cameron, Gordon Brown, Ed Balls, Thought he was gone silly, and Peter Mandelson said, "Oh, what?" said to Nick, to Nick Robinson, uh, "I, you know, the overture he was making was actually quite impressive, a sort of prag arch pragmatism." And others around me, including Gordon, thought it was an error. I couldn't see the error, and he couldn't because it was a it was a masterstroke. You basically you, you if the, if minority talk had gone on, David Cameron would not be prime minister. So he says, "Let's." 
let's make it a coalition with Liberal Democrats. That's a masterstroke because Liberal Democrats is a centrist to left of centre party. No one expected that. Numbers wise, you would politically not so. It's just a masterstroke. So what happens? The talks begin, and Cameron sends the four people I would send in the talks like this. Uh, I'd send Ken Clark as well, but these are four. William Hague, Oliver Letwin, George Osborne, Ed Llewellyn. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. William Hague, Shadow Foreign Secretary. Ollie Letwin. Oliver Letwin, the week before the election, had done a list of all the policies where the Liberal Democrats and Tories agree. He was also the with the phrase, the big society. Everyone thought that was Steve Hilton. No, it was Oliver Letwin. Um, George Osborne, arguably one of the most amiable politicians, certainly. And Ed Llewellyn, David Cameron's chief of staff. Or George Osborne, his shadow chancellor of the Exchequer. Yes, perfect team. Clegg doesn't send it. He sends David Laws, a good pick. Uh, Danny Alexander, a very good pick. Uh, Chris Hoon. Oh, Chris Hoon. Chris Hoon obviously went to prison for perjury. And of course, the only sports event Chris in the House of Commons Chris Hoon had ever done, the only sports club Chris Hoon in the House of Commons was part of, was of course Chris Hoon on a ski slope. And look how that went for him. <laughs> uh, Andrew Stunnell, I've never heard of in my life. I mean, if you want the ideal team, it'd be it'd be William Hague, Ed Llewellyn, George Osborne, uh, William Hague, sorry, Ed Llewellyn, George Osborne, Oliver Letwin, Ken Clark. And the five Liberal Democrats I'd send are the following. I would send uh, Ming Campbell, David Laws, Danny Alexander, Ed Davey, Vince Cable. That's the perfect coalition talks you'll need. Five giants of each party. Um, but as Gustav said later, said that the rapport between the two, were abs- between the Labour, the Tories and the Lib Dems, was so clear and famously George Osborne said about it you know sorry David Law said that you know these were there were serious concessions from the Tories example the Tories ditched the inheritance tax uh, cuts they wanted to raise the inheritance tax threshold from 300,000 to a million quid that was ditched and um, they were also not going to introduce some of the broader privatisation measures in education uh, the Liberal Democrats are ditched to guarantees on Trident. Lib Dems was, of course, not to renew Trident, because it's, it's an interesting idea, but still, to renew, do you need Trident? Do you need Trident? And that's that was their concession. And, and they also accepted we need £6 billion of cuts in the 2010-11 year. One, which conveniently was 1% of government spending. But that was a silly thing to do because every country in the world was doing a stimulus in 2010. Barack Obama was, Chancellor Merkel was, even Nicolas Sarkozy. Even Nicolas Sarkozy was doing uh, stimulus in France. But no, apparently, uh, George Osborne knows better, which I find hilarious because, of course, the Tory party that opposed the bailout of Northern Rock, that opposed nationalisation of Northern Rock, that opposed the bailout of small businesses, that opposed the measures to tackle unemployment, that opposed the car scrappage scheme, that opposed home by direct, that opposed every measure we did, whether it was on stimulus, whether it was on job guarantees, whether it was on the G20 summit, whether it was on Northern Rock, whether it was guaranteeing deposits of savers. Everything we did, they opposed, opposed, opposed. And now Kenneth Clark 
or the week before the election, said the Tories were wrong on Northern Rock in, in, in opposing the nationalisation of it. So only two people in the whole country thought the Tory party response to the global financial crisis was good. One of them was David Cameron, the other was George Osborne. Every party in the world, every government in the developed world made the choice to act and invest in the countries. Every government in the political party, left or right, knew you had to act to save the economy. Every major leader in the world knew you had to act to save the economy. Only one party, just one party, said we had to do nothing. Only one party said just sink or swim. Only one party had indifference for the poor. It was the Conservative Party of Britain. So, you know, the fact that David Laws and the Lib Dems are now taking on their economic ideas from the Tories is a bit daft. Simon Hughes, though, they said the feeling amongst Lib Dems was one of euphoria. You know, Simon Hughes famously said, well, you know, we should seize the moment, lads. You know, they'll, they'll be doing electoral reform this year, completely laws reform next year. But Labour, of course, wouldn't stand by. You know, they absolutely did their best contact people. You know, Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, Andrew Adonis, Gordon Brown. They were all talking to their friends. You know, Paddy Ashdown, Charles Kennedy, Min Campbell, Vince Cable, Ed Davey. They were talking to them as much as they could. The emails, calls, texts to try and get a deal. Something that I personally have always believed, which is a coalition between the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats is what this country needed in 2010. Not a Tories. So, the evening was that first phone call. Uh, Ethan Mandelson later criticised it, saying, it should have been more come to me than I'm telling you where to go. And uh, Nick Clegg later said that he was said it was he spoke more than I did, but it wasn't acrimonious. I mean, Gordon Brown's phone calls sometimes could be very much a long, long explanation rather than a conversation. But he was still one of the shrewdest rides in British politics by a mile. So day two, all three leaders of course got ready for VE celebrations at the Cenotaph, and Nick, whilst Nick Clegg, you remember, felt much more comfortable with David Cameron. You know, public school boys, intellectuals. But broadly right of centre, you had to also remember this. The party, the idea, the Liberal Democratic Party were going to sign on to a deal with the Tory party is laughable. Laughable. And famously, uh, you know, when Nick Clegg f- uh, tried to meet people in the Lib Dem HQ for an all-day strategy meeting, Protesters came and were wanting to, to warn Nick Clegg not to sell out to the Tories. And everyone thought these were independent protesters. They weren't. They were our staff. <laughs> they were our people. Labour Party people. Uh, when you know, it was a good stunt. It was a good stunt. I love that. Anyways, uh, as McMean Campbell said to Clegg, if you're selling your house, you wouldn't sell it to one buyer. A little competition could do no harm. And Paddy Ashton would say, Paddy Ashton did say, you know, there was no possible way we could have a bargain with the Tory party with any chance of getting things through if we hadn't puffed up things with the Labour party. Now, this was the feeling of the Liberal Democrat old guard. And this is sometimes why I wonder, why did Bing Campbell step down as Lib Dem leader? He should have remained Lib Dem leader because we had pri- you know, because he told Gordon Brown, you know, our natural instinct was to do a deal with Labour, which is why I always say, if there were just 20 seats not 10, just 20 seats. So we've been Conservatives, 286. Labour, 278. Liberal Democrats, 57. The Labour Party and Liberal Democratic Party would have had a coalition. 
but it wasn't. Remember, as David Laws on the 8th of May said, we're going to continue our talks with the Tories, he went to go and talk with the Labour Party. Now, those fist talks, those fist talks would have stopped the momentum if they were done well. But the Labour Party was split on should we even do the fucking, t- oh, sorry, should we even do the flipping talks? You had people like Peter Mandelson and Andrew Donis who were like, oh my God, yes. And Ed Balls <laughs> being Ed Balls. So he was like, no, we just, no. I mean, Peter Man- I mean, Ed Balls famously said, you know, we didn't have a negotiating brief. We, didn't ha- we weren't going to make an offer they couldn't refuse. So David Cameron that evening, of course, met Nick Clegg in Admiralty House and they spoke about their policies and their ideas. But the genius of Cameron Clegg is they figured out something very important. They figured out the solution could not be getting a bunch of staff in the room to minute it. It has to be one-on-one. You had to personal chemistrize this. Otherwise, it just wasn't going to work. And the personal chemistry was key. And then, of course, they and you know, camp, everyone thinks that they had met before. The fact is, when the government opened the Supreme Court in 2009, David Cameron and Nick Clegg had a 45-minute conversation with each other. Not about you know, coalitions, but about their politics and their broader philosophy. And that uh, sparks flew, shall we say, to quote Taylor Swift. You know, sparks fly to that meeting that they could... Uh, get along and they could have a deal and they were amiable fellows and Cameron's you know at that stage the relationship was good we were getting on it felt as the beginning was clicking into place and Clegg said you know we were both surprised at each other to the degree we we're both in, in a totally new situation we had to be open and pragmatic you know day three now day three was interesting the Gordon Brown of course was still in Scotland <laughs> uh, yes You know, so Gordon was in Scotland and he called up Vince Cable. Now, Vince Cable would later say about the call that he felt the Liberal Democrats were the natural allies of Labour and we should work with him, not the Conservatives. We've always communicated. And he was asking, you know, why would um, Vince Cable, why would Gordon Brown talk to you as the Shadow Business Secretary? Wait, was he not? No, sorry. Vince Cable was Shadow Chancellor. Sorry, Shadow Chancellor and not Nick Clay, who was leader. And like uh, Cameron said, sorry, Nick, Vince Cable said, well, we've always communicated very well. There's a mutual respect and we've always found it easy to talk to one another. And now that is true. Uh, Vince Cable was a very good friend to Gordon Brown, like Paddy Ashdown was, like Simon Hughes was, like Charlie Kennedy was. And they always got along. And I think there were people who said that Vince Cable would be brought into the government. And that is true. You know, Gordon Brown brought Paddy Ashdown to the government as well in 2007. So don't rule it out. They always had a cordial friendship. Remember that old uh, thing on Question Time, where <laughs> Alistair Campbell was being teased about teasing about who was in the coalition talks, and uh, in terms of who Gordon Brown called, and uh, <laughs> was it who was it? Was it Vince? Vince? Was it V? Was it VC? And Alistair went, yes, it could have been VC. Ah, uh, VC. Okay. How about anyone else? PA. <laughs> Yes, PA. How about another one? SH. So you've got Vince Cable, we've got Paddy Ashdown, Cyber Hughes. Anyone else? Just the initials will do. It's so true, though, because whether it was Vince Cable, Paddy Ashdown, Ed Davey, Simon Hughes, Ming Campbell, Charlie Kennedy, virtually everyone 
beyond these three dimwits, and that's I now of course speak of Nick Clegg and David Laws and Daniel Alexander, believed that the natural ally of the Liberal Democrats was the Labour Party. The Labour Party and Liberal Democrats are left of centre social democrats. Oh dear. Anyways. So uh but the interesting part was that Sunday morning, Paddy Ashdown he said everyone knew that while it was just possible to do a deal with now he's now everyone by the way, by everyone he, he's now speaking of the Liberal Democrats. He said what everyone knew else was just possible to do a deal with Labour, it would be impossible to do a deal with Gordon Brown. So they got to a secret meeting. It was Peter Mandelson and Gordon Brown. They went down a very series of slippery, very steep steps and to walk on a secret underground corridor to the House of Commons. And it was Peter Mandelson, it was Gordon Brown for Labour, it was Daniel Alexander, and it was Nick Clegg for the Liberal Democrats. And the meeting was uncomfortable because Clegg's latest of the meeting it was, you know, Gordon kept, this was Clegg's view, Clegg, Clegg later said of the meeting, Gordon kept saying we could sort X, Y, Z policy issue out. And I said, there's no doubt we could sort oh, policy issues on a whole range of things, but it would not be seen as legitimate. The Labour Party had lost the election and therefore it would not be easy for the British people to understand why the leader who lost the election ended up being Prime Minister again. And Peter Manderson said the meeting. Well, Gordon, Peter Manderson, of course, later said about the meeting. Gordon took that perfectly calmly. He's a grown up. He understood. And he said, let, and Gordon Brown apparently said, let us get back to you on that. We'll get back to you on that. And, you know, Clegg and Manderson debated it in front of Gordon Brown with uh, Peter Manderson saying that we're going to need to get this coalition deal through. And Clegg saying, we've got to get him, he's got to be gone by October. And David Laws later told a senior Liberal Democrats of course, in Paddy Ashdown's home, that Gordon has reneged on his offer and the rest is he'll do is go sometime next Parliament. And Ashdown, of course, assessed the dynamic brilliantly because he said, between Clegg and Brown, he says, you've wanted to be your Prime Minister your whole life. He now speaks of Gordon Brown. You just, you just lived your, you just lead, led your party into an election that you've lost. And the door bursts open, and in comes young Lochinvar, who's outmatched you in the debates. He's the future, you're the past. I think for anyone, that would be difficult to handle, even with someone with Gordon's less-than-livable characteristics at times. And that is just... When you think about that, that is so true. You know, Gordon Brown is what, at the time, was one of the most towering... No, not one of the... The most towering figure in British politics. He'd been... A shadow minister in the eighties. He was shadow. He was shadow chancellor in the nineties. He was chancellor for ten years. Only one person did more than ten years as shadow chan- chancellor of the Exchequer, and that was when Gladstone combined the role of chancellor and prime minister as one. Gordon Brown delivered the most budgets as chancellor only than any other chancellor in the history of this country. He's one of the best chancellors. Arguably one of the most brilliant prime ministers. And he lost to young Lockinvar, that's Nick Clegg, who did a great TV debate performance, and he's a great debater, don't get me wrong. And he's he's weather demanders, and he's just very horrendous, horrendous. Lost in the sense, not in terms of seats or votes, but in terms of the power control of the dynamic. So the next day, 
Vince Cable gets a phone call at 6.30am from the Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. And he couldn't remain... Uh, and Cable basically said that the numbers didn't work and Gordon Brown could not be Prime Minister with a coalition where the numbers couldn't work. Now, the numbers, of course, did work. Three th- remember, 336 to 306, it could work. But the argument of how does a Prime Minister with 29% of the vote constitute a government is a good argument. But Gordon Brown, 5.30 that evening on the 10th of May, basically has to blow the whole process wide, wide open. And you have to understand, this did change everything politically. Why? Because he took away the one thing, the one reason you could theoretically oppose Gordon Brown, you could really say we don't want to deal with Labour, there's one reason, because Gordon Brown was leader. So what does Gordon Brown do? Gordon Brown goes out and says, I have asked the Labour Party to facilitate its own process of having a leadership election. That changed for a bit. Everything. I compare that to the Florida Supreme Court telling uh, in 2000, saying we should have a a count of all the undervotes in the entire state of Florida. And that's the 2000 election. That changed everything for a couple of hours until the Supreme Court, under the Republican Party's orders, decided to ignore them, the rights to violate the 10th Amendment of the Constitution, and ignore them. This same here with Gordon Brown, because what Nick Clegg, Nick Clegg picked up the phone, and Ed Balls and Peter Mandelson picked up the phone, and Nick Clegg was saying to Gordon Brown, of course we should proceed on this basis, of course Labour and the Liberal Democrats should reach an agreement we are, after all, the two main progressive parties of British politics. So that's why we must wait and work. Now, that is, a, that's a, again, that's another turning point. You know, David Cameron and Nick Clegg had been trying to get a coalition deal on things like Europe, on tax, on defence, on deficit. But instead, Gordon Brown basically falls on the sword to try and keep Labour in power. Now, let's say hypothetically that happened. It would have been Prime Minister David Miliband, probably. I mean, I don't see Ed Miliband winning in 2010 if Labour was still in power. Let's be clear about that. So it would have been Prime Minister David Miliband. Now, that would have been very interesting. Uh, A David Miliband-Nick Clegg coalition of two politicians who are basically that. The same. The same. Two sides of the exact same coin. I don't mean that derogatorily. But Clegg, basically, on that Monday, it was entirely, entirely, entirely possible that Labour could still be in power. There wasn't a doubt now. That was doable. Um, you know, Gordon Brown, Alistair Campbell, famously, Andrew Adonis were out there selling it. Alistair Campbell famously got into a, into a shouting fight with uh, Adam Bolton of Sky News. You know, don't keep casting aspersions on what I think. Adam, calm down, calm down. Dignity, dignity. You know, famously that 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 quotes from um Alistair Campbell. Basically, Adam Bolton was arguing to Alistair Campbell, the numbers didn't work, you couldn't do a deal. And Alistair said, Look, Adam, you're obviously upset that David Cameron's not the Prime Minister. You are, you probably are. And Adam Bolton got a bit cross. Um and started shouting at him. 
And that, of course, has over a million views on YouTube and it trended on Twitter because it was an amazing clip to watch. Uh, Alistair basically kicking Adam Bolton to shreds. It's always good to watch Alistair Campbell being a legend. But, so David Cameron knew, knew that if the Tories were to get back into power, they would have to make a huge, huge compromise on electoral reform, voting reform. Now, Here's what I'm thinking. So they go out and Cameron decides to offer a basically a ref wants to offer them a referendum on the alternative voting system. Here's my thing. Why A V? Why did the Liberal Democrats put the bar so low? They could have gone for the single transferable vote. They could have gone for mixed a member post uh mixed member is it M MMP, I think it's called it's MMP. Or they could have gone for 80 plus. But you know, let's go for the weakest system. And demand a referendum on AV alone. Why? Go bolder. Go bolder. But Cameron decided to sell it to the Tories by saying that Gordon Brown had offered Nick Clegg AV without a referendum. Now, first of all, that's complete nonsense. He hadn't. Um, Election 2015 PR. There's an FT article about PR, because it basically would have made little to no impact at all. Now, that's the DuPont system, which is the Welsh system, which is an utterly hilarious system, but not the system we live in. Oh, it's the European Parliament system. Why well, that was the Welsh system. Just trying to find the article in UK PR. Um, um, I can't seem to find it, good listeners. I'm trying to find the twenty as an underproportional representation. The FT, the FT. Hmm. If this is from PR, yes. Hmm. So under the single transferable vote system, the twenty fifteen election, which is of course, uh, Labour Tories three hundred and thirty two. Is this, wait, is this 2010? Yeah. The election, of course, Tories 331, Labour 232, UKIP 1, Liberal Democrats 10, SNP 58, Greens 1. The 2015 election under the single transferable vote would have been Conservatives 242, Labour 208, the UKIP party 80, <laughs> God help us, Liberal Democrats 47, SNP 30, Greens 20. Now, interesting what that is, 50, 97. That would have been a Conservative UKIP coalition with the DUP. That is terrifying. Um, but there we are. That's why PR should never, ever happen in British politics. You should always have only first past the post. Why? Because first past the post ensures 
and the Nutter parties are kept in their boxes where they belong. But David Cameron told the Tory party that committee, that in committee room 14, that Gordon Brown had promised to Ednick Clegg actual form without a referendum. Now, of course, that's nonsense, but he said that's the price. The price has to be a referendum. Now, look, AV, those figures wouldn't have a single transferable vote. AV would have not produced a, a massive change. It would have given about 10 or fewer seats to the Tories in that election. At most, 10. Not really more than 10. But... So what's the fuss? But nevertheless, uh, the Tory party reluctantly accepted PR, AV, but they said we must tie this to cutting the number of MPs down to 600 in the House of Commons, which thankfully... Because the AV referendum was defeated, Nick Clegg said, no, we're keeping it at 650. Which is funny, because that made Tories even more jolly well cross, which is always very interesting. I mean, of course, if it had been 600, uh, 331 to about, what, 277? 267, maybe? 269? That's a majority of 50 seats in the House of Commons. So it's... But then we can't talk about gerrymandering, really, because, what? We're the party in 2005 that won 35.2% of the vote and 60, the majority of 66. Quite funny, though. But yeah, as a, exactly. So it was last throw of the dice. And David Cameron went home. He told Samantha Cameron, of course, that he's still going to be leader of the opposition. But if, Dave, if Labour were to stay in power, they had, had to get a deal with the Lib Dems. So an hour before the talks in Portcullis House, William Hague had gone out the House of Commons and said, we will offer to the Liberal Democrats a referendum on the alternative voting system. That's a pretty crap William Hague impression. I can do better than that. Oh, time to change. This government that's divided. <laughs> Doesn't he accept that the Foreign Secretary, the Northern Ireland Secretary, all want to campaign for the Euro. He obviously wants to join the Euro, and the Chancellor and the Trade Secretary don't want to join the Euro. The Northern the Foreign Secretary says, we can't start the Euro indefinitely. The Northern Ireland Secretary says, we must join the Euro, and start, we must start the debate join the Euro. To which the Chancellor's response is to tell, to tell us... Hey, so the Northern Ireland Secretary said, we cannot stay out of the Euro indefinitely. To which the Chancellor's response was to get out of his spin doctor to say, the Northern Ireland Secretary is the economic intelligence of a peak. <laughs> that's, that's a better William Hague impression. That's him mocking Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Robin Cook, Peter Mandelson over the Euro debacle. Anyways, um, they had to get a deal. So Hague had offered PR... With the referendum. So Ed Bowles, Harriet Harman, Andrew Adonis, Peter Mandelson were the Labour negotiating team, David Laws, Danny Alexander, Chris Hune, Andrew Stunnell was the Dem negotiating team, and they were basically thinking deal. Now, half an hour within the meeting, Alistair Campbell was seeing messages on his phone saying, Oh, we're fucked. <laughs> you know, Paddy Ashdown was sending messages. Charlie Kennedy was sending you messages saying, it's not going well. <laughs> it's not going well, Alistair. And um, David Laws later said, the talks were pretty hideous from our perspective. And Ed Ball said they were arrogant, pretty dismissive. And then, and then 
Laws and Alexander, as David Laws and Danny Alexander said, they wanted Labour to agree to £6 billion of cuts this year. Uh, what? No. Just because you want to breach a signing manifesto, don't drag us into this nonsense. And Ed Balls later said it was pretty, was it pretty stunning? Yeah, it didn't occur to me they could hold their party on such a massive breach of the manifesto. And it was. So, the Labour Lib Dem talks have collapsed, pretty much. These are so acrimonious, so bitter. And the Liberal Democrats agreed they would not do any deal except a coalition. That's a Tory deal, basically. And Vince Cable said he supported the coalition with Conservatives because his heart went one way, i.e. with Labour, but his head went the other way, which is the to Tories because of the numbers. Now, the 11th of May, 2010. All may have seemed clear, but the fact is, it was clear as day. David Cameron came out the morning saying it was decision time for the Liberal Democrats. And it was breaking point because, the, you know, our system is truly the worst way to do a coalition. You've just come out six weeks of a general election campaign. You're sleep deprived. You're broadly knackered. Then you have the press all circling you. Helicopters above circling you. Stuffy cabinet rooms to meet in. It's not a good system. You're rushing through a deal as quick as you can. And by the way, we will talk about the coalition deal once we're done. It isn't a good system to negotiate in. But it was a quick system. It's a quick, it's a pressure cooker, basically. Um, but Gordon, now whilst Gordon Brown going had made it entirely possible for the Labour Lib Dem coalition to explore, it couldn't happen because it made the one person who had the authority had the presence to get through a coalition deal, he wasn't there anymore. And that's the key. Gordon Brown wasn't in the picture. Well, he was still Prime Minister, so it's still Gordon Brown, but he, he couldn't get the deal done because he didn't have the authority. Now, the label, uh, the fact was, Gordon Brown knew that he could now walk out. And that was the, the William Hart of the Liberal Democrats and the Conservative Party was simply that. That if Gordon threw the towel in, the, co- the leverage was gone, the coalition talks were over. So, Nick Clegg and Gordon Brown had several calls that day with Nick Clegg pleading with him to stay in number 10. Ed Balls was telling him to leave. Get out. Don't go. Keep your dignity. Keep your dignity, he kept saying. And um, the Lib Dem negotiators, they knew it was a complete race against the time now. There was no way. So the Palace basically wanted Gordon to stay number 10 too. And the Palace, the Queen's private secretary, told Peter Mandelson, who basically was the de facto deputy prime minister, you know, Peter Mandelson said, look, we've all got a pretty uh, upset prime minister in number 10. You know, we can't keep him there forever. And... The Prime Minister said, look, I fully understand that nobody likes this, but the Prime Minister has a constitutional duty to remain number 10 until the Queen can ask Gordon or an alternative government to form administration to just wait a little longer till things boil up become clearer. Now, 5.30, Nick Clegg calls up Gordon Brown and asks for more time. And this is verbatim because, of course, Alistair Campbell wrote this in his diaries. Um, he wrote, Clegg called and asked for more time. And GB said, time for what? Unless you can tell me you have broken off talks in favour of us, I have no choice to go to the palace. Nick, 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 I have to do this now. There's only one choice. You made it. You, there's only one choice. You made it. His final words were, 
Okay, thanks, Nick. Goodbye. And that was it for Labour. 13 wonderful, brilliant, remarkable years had come to an end. Gordon Brown announced his resignation. Uh, he thanked his wife, thanked his children, thanked his country, and he left. And the brilliance of that was Gordon Brown had kept his dignity. He kept his pride, and he kept his dignity, and he kept his self-respect. And he wasn't going to have Nick Clegg, or David Cameron, or David Laws, or George Osborne rip the man's dignity and self-respect from him. He's too great for that. I mean, famously, Mandelson apparently said to him, Gordon, they're using you. Don't let the don't let the bastards win. And that's true. And he left. And he left with his he left with his dignity. And David Laws and George Osborne, who were watching uh, Gordon Brown drive from the Mall to the palace, uh, Laws said, "Oh my God, we're going to have a Lib Dem a Tory co co Lib Dem co Conservative coalition. We've changed the government. The future of British politics will be different." And of course, William Hague, after doing the deal, later went to sleep with, uh, in the bed with Fionn, his wife. And Fionn said, what's wrong? And he said, I think we just killed the Liberal Party. <laughs> Which is so true. I mean, these people, the Liberal Democrats, do they not see what happens when centrist parties do deals with centre-right parties across Europe? They go down very swiftly. But David Cameron, of course, didn't actually know that a coalition deal had been agreed to. Famously, he got uh, me to the Queen's of the United as Prime Minister. He actually didn't know because, of course, Nick Clegg and William Hague were still trying to put the, the finishing touches on the coalition deal. So he didn't. He told the Queen, you know, I hope to be forming a coalition deal with the Liberal Democrats, but I'm going to come back tomorrow morning and say it's quite different. And as David Cameron gave his speech number 10, as he drove up to the number 10 uh, Downing Street, and drove on the step on the doorstep, and he said... Uh, I want to thank the outgoing Prime Minister. Compared with a decade ago, our country is more fairer and more stronger abroad. And for that, I want to thank the outgoing Prime Minister for his service to his country. That's paraphrasia. Uh, but he did say, I intend to form a full, was it a full, a strong state, a strong and full coalition with the Liberal Democrats. He explained that this is going to cause problems, but we've got to do it. And he knew that he couldn't walk in as a minority. Because you'd have the Tory right kicking him about. I mean, it's the Michael Portillo analysis that if David Cameron won a majority of, say, 20 at the general election in 2010, so let's say it was David Cameron 335 seats, the opposition 315 seats, he could not be strong because he'd have 25, 30 Eurosceptic right-wingers smacking him about all the time. If he had won... If the coalition the Liberal Democrats, however, allowed him to tell the right wing of his party to go away and shut up because the, he said, we can't do anything because the Liberal Democrats won't allow it. I mean, famously, there was a Labour left winger when the Lib Lab Pact happened back in 77, 78, who famously said, these Liberals have more power than Jesus Christ and the Twelve Apostles. That's one of the, the funny quotes I always remember. Um, but as he came to number 10, Gus O'Donnell later said about it, he said about the transition, he said it was utter sheer relief that we got a prime minister out and in in half an hour and we had a coalition deal, not in 40 days, but five. And Haig, uh, entry number 10, later said, you know, I was the last cabinet minister to look at the cabinet room. I mean, it's interesting because Haig, of course, was the final cabinet minister. To, when the John Major government finished in 1997 and Tony Blair came in and the world got and the country got better, 
Haig Wilmhaig was the very last minister who was the Secretary of State for Wales for Matlin's to leave the government. And Haig, of course, was the first cabinet minister to enter the government this time. It's, it's the, the ironies of ironies. But Haig said above all, he said, it was a great relief that we could actually now do talk about what we can do for the country, not about as we not talk about as we've done for 13 years. And Clegg lays out the coalition that he was aware we'd done something extraordinary and a great and something quite new. And it was something quite new. You know, Nick Clegg had basically killed off the Liberal Party. But I mean isn't it was interesting because what you had there was a coalition deal between Labour sort of between the Tories and the Liberal Democrats. Now that hadn't happened before. Anyways, you had a coalition deal between Labour, sorry, between the Tories and the Liberal Democrats. Now that had not happened before. Famously, uh, Ted Heath, uh, he wanted a coalition deal between him and Jeremy Thorpe, who were the Tories and Lib Dems, and he'd actually offered to make Thorpe the Home Secretary, which I find absolutely intriguing on why. He hadn't said yes, because he could have said yes, and Heath would then have just called in Ulster, and that would have been a majority of the Heath government. But he said no, Thorpe said no, which I don't understand why. But what had the coalition agreed to? The coalition agreed to an emergency budget in 50 days, £6 billion of cuts this year, this is the economy, uh, more cuts to support economic growth, the 1% national insurance increase that Gordon Brown wanted was to be scrapped, there would be, a, there would be a, the £10,000 income tax-free allowances would be going to, to, by 2015. So in other words, the income tax-free allowance was £6,000 in 2010. They would get that to £10,000 by 2015. That is a huge tax cut for the poor. They were going to cut public spending in the autumn. They were going to have a new minister to look at structural banking reform after the banks had crashed the economy. They would have a banking levy, and they'd also cut down on bankers' bonuses that were, quote, unacceptable. They would exempt the middle class from child trust funds and tax credits. Uh, on education, they would invest in reducing class sizes for children below 20 for the poor backgrounds. They failed at that one miserably. And free schools. The idea that you could also have... You can have businesses and charities creating schools. I think it's a very interesting idea, actually, free schools. Hasn't worked, but it's still an interesting idea. It's an interesting theoretical idea. But the pupil premium, the idea that the poorest schools would get much more investment, is a very good idea. On political reform, this is, of course, after the expenses scandal. You had a referendum on AV for general elections. Fixed-term parliaments at five years. So Thursday, May the 7th, 2015, with the next general election date. For any plans to call a general election, you need 55% of members of the House of Commons. You'd have a committee to look at a PR elected House of Lords. Correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there an indicative vote on the House of Lords in 03? On Lords Reform 2003. I think Robin Cook's idea, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because they looked at they looked at Lords Reform under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. By the way, I'm very much for the fully appointed House of Lords. I believe in a fully appointed House of Lords for my own personal bias. But what you had was, it was a free vote. Because <laughs> what you had was, basically, everything was shut down. <laughs> the 100% elected version, this is the idea you abolished the House of Lords as a uh, appointed chamber. That failed 289 to 272. An 80% elected House failed narrowly, 284 to 281. 
The 60% elected House failed much more, 316 to 253. <laughs> that was basically... <laughs> Fair enough. Then you had another one. Any, any more? Any more in the House of Lords? Oh, that was it. Why do I feel that there was more? No? Okay. Well, that's it. Those three votes were defeated on the House of Lords reform. Hmm. Interesting. I thought, I thought it'd be a bit more than that, but okay. Get lost. All right. Uh, where's the BBC News article? Stop. Okay. Oh, equal numbers. The House as the Commons said he cut all the MPs down to six hundred. That was in the that was in the coalition agreement. Of course, it was ditched. The rights recall corrupt MPs. The idea the attempts that your constituents thought you were corrupt, they could throw you out. A register for all the lobbyists. Register for all the lobbyists, so then we can know who's lobbying who. A very good idea. The Scottish power, Parliament to get more powers. That was a good idea. A referendum on devolution of further powers to the Welsh Assembly. Another good idea. A review of Scottish MPs. Oh. Looking at English votes for English laws. That was also there. <laughs> a ban on non-dumps. <laughs> okay, why is that funny? Banning non-dumps. Okay. Lord Ashcroft, a Tory peer who gave 8 million quid to the Tory party, who's in background Tory party for 20 years, he was a House of Lords Ashcroft, sat in the House of Lords, and Lib Dems and Labour thought that was hilarious. So they basically told Lord Ashcroft, get out of the House of Commons, Lords. And they also look at reforming donations and party funding. Basically, all that political reform is a Liberal Democrat coup. On foreign affairs, the war cabinet that David Cameron wanted in 2009 to oversee Afghanistan, Presumably, General Richard Dannett would be chairing that. New National Security Council, that's basically American, the NSC, some security threats, which I think is a fantastic idea. Good idea. The Strategic Defence Review, another good idea. The idea that you look at, we look at defence spending, increase it. Good. It's impossible. Good. Ah, the Trident renewal to go ahead. Now, that's interesting because, of course, the Liberal Democrats in 2010 opposed Trident. They thought it was a ludicrous idea and they would dismantle it. Because it costed £100 billion over 30 years, and, and they saw it as funny. I saw it as key to our national defence, and it is key to our national defence. No further powers to secede to the EU without a referendum. How the Liberal Democrats... Like, well, actually, no, actually. Sorry, I do not have agreed to that, because in 2008, Nick Clegg was, of course, the first leader who wanted a referendum on the European uh, Union. The UK were not to join the Euro in the lifetime of Parliament, and... The work to limit the application of the EU Working Time Directive. That is the most petty thing. Okay, the EU Working Time Directive is the idea you've got to not work more than 37 and a half hours a week. Tories, of course, who, because they come from their, their daddies who have millions of pounds, don't know what a working actual job means. They say 37 and a half hours a week. For God's thing is, in 2013, they talked about the repatriation of powers. The EU working time directive was the best thing they thought of. What do they have against this working time directive? I'm very for the EU working time directive, you might know. 
Um, health and NHS spending to rise in real terms every year of the Parliament. Vince Cable, of course, thought it was a stupid idea. But they did rise in real terms. It rose on average by 0.9%. Now, that's real terms, but it's also derisory. Civil liberties, well, they did a good job on civil liberties. They abolished all the ID cards, I agree. And safeguards for use of personalities on the DNA database. I also agree with that. Very good. Pensions and welfare reform. There'll be a commission to review the long-term affordability of public sector pensions. Here's a suggestion. They are affordable because they have a moral logic obligation to pay public sector pensions. They were going to restore the link between pensions and earnings. That's a very big concession. Here's how. They were going to raise the pension age to 66. <laughs> Over 20 years. Uh, and benefits were conditioned on willing to work. I mean, that's, of course, the idea of linking unemployment compensation to a work programme. The way, of course, you do it, and, of course, that failed miserably because your businesses like Matalan and Tesco's, who say, we can't pay people £1.89 an hour. That's disgusting, and it is. The way you fix that is you link unemployment benefit to the minimum wage and then link that to participation of a 45-week job training program, which on week 46 has it gives you a job. But yeah, the triple lock, the idea, the pensions would rise by prices earnings of 2.5%. It was the Liberal Democrat idea, and it would be kept. Now, of course, the Tories want to dismantle that idea because they're numpties. They want to cap immigration outside of Europe because, of course, it's David Cameron's idea. Let's, let's get immigration below the tens of thousands, not the hundreds of thousands. I mean... This is a stupid idea, because so long as in the European Union and you have free movement, you can't get rid of immigration out of the tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands. What a stupid soundbite that is. I, You don't need a cap. So long as immigrants are willing to work, are self-sufficient for two years, they wanted to learn or can speak English, and they have a skill to, and they want to do, be productive, then let them come. What's the issue here? I mean, they also agreed to uh, end detention of children in migrant centres, which I thought was a very perfect, sensible idea. Uh, anything else? Vince Cable, Trident, oh, yeah, stupid idea. All right. Uh, looking, just looking for anything else. Ah, the environment. So they agreed that aviation passengers, they will have a plane tax. There'll be no more runways at Gatwick. Heathrow, Gatwick, or Stansted. We broke that pledge very quickly. There'd be new nuclear power plants. The Lib Dems, of course, will stay on the issue of nuclear power plants. There'd be a creation of a green investment bank. Very good idea. Very good idea. High-speed rail networks to be built. Not a good idea. So that's spending £100 billion on HS2 so Londoners don't have the indignity of having to see what Nottingham is. How about reconnect the local villages and the tra- and the local towns' railways? Town to town... Town to town, village to village. Not one big fucking train. No new coal-powered fire... St- no new coal-fired power station without carbon capture and storage. Good. No, I don't need coal anymore. And increased target share for energy renewable sources. Of course, Cameron, of course, had changed... Look at the Tory Party logo. The, the trees. Yeah. And, of course, for families, they would bring back the marriage tax allowances. But there weren't any concessions in there. You know, for example, the Lib Dems written a caution agreement that the Lib Dems could abstain on any vote to increase tuition fees. And in the October, when George Osborne was going to do tuition fees, Nick Clegg was told, we don't have to do this if you don't want to. Nick Clegg said, nope, we're going to do it anyways. I mean, there you are. That's a broken promise. I mean, 
I mean, that coalition agreement is very interesting. It's a very interesting, very bold coalition agreement. Uh, it's a very interesting and very bold coalition agreement that I think it could have been interesting. It, it, it had a lot of policy ideas. Actually, the coalition agreement is downloadable on gov.uk. But there you are. It, that's an hour-long episode. I kept it to an hour, and I said to give you a quick rundown of everything in the 2010 coalition talks. I tried to keep it anecdotal. I tried to keep it effective. I may have droned on a bit. I might have got a bit dozy halfway through. But yeah, but, I, but I've quite enjoyed this episode. So until the next episode, listeners, uh, next Sunday, goodbye.